Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Arena Pharmaceuticals' first quarter 2021 financial results conference event. At this time, all participants have been placed on a listen-only mode, and we will open the floor for your questions and comments after the presentation. It is now my pleasure to turn the floor over to your host, Glenn Schulman. Sir, the floor is yours. Thanks, Matthew, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm pleased to welcome you to today's call discussing Arena's first quarter financial results. Joining me on the call this afternoon are Peter Greenleaf, our President and CEO, Max Galau, Chief Commercial Officer, Neil Solomon, Chief Medical Officer, and Joe Miller, our Chief Financial Officer. This afternoon after the close, we issued a press release announcing our financial results and recent operational highlights, which is accessible from our website at www.meridiapharma.com and has been filed on a Form 8K with the SEC as well. We also filed our financial statement and management discussion analysis in our quarterly report on Form 10-Q. I'd also like to remind everyone that today's call is being webcast live on Arena's IR website, and a replay will be available approximately two hours after the completion of today's call. Please note that the content of today's call is the property of Arena. It may not be recorded, reproduced, or transcribed without prior written consent obtained from Arena. For approval, please feel free to reach out to me, Glenn Shulman, via email at ir.areniapharma.com. Also note that during the course of today's call, we may make forward-looking statements based on our current expectations. These forward-looking statements are subject to a number of significant risks and uncertainties, and our actual results may differ materially. For discussion of factors that could affect our future financial results in business, please refer to the disclosure in our press release and on our quarterly report on Form 10-Q, which is publicly available, along with our most recent filings with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and Canadian Security Authorities. Also, please note that all of the statements made during today's call are current as of today, May 6, 2021, and are based on information currently available to us. Except as required by law, we assume no obligation to update any such statements as of the state. With all of that, uh, let me now turn the call over to Peter Greenleaf, Arrhenius President and CEO. Peter, it's all yours. Well, thanks, Glenn, and I want to thank everyone for joining us today. I'm going to spend a couple minutes up front walking everyone through our activities for the first quarter, including the launch of Loop Kindness. We'll also review what's coming up in the back half of the year. A brief update on our ongoing clinical and R&D activities, as well as a review of our financial position. So with respect to the loop kindness launch, as you all know by now, we were granted FDA approval around the end of January. And once we had the approval in hand, we got to work getting the therapy to patients. Max Kalau is here today, and he'll provide with, with more specifics in a few minutes. But in short, we're executing the plan. And I have a great deal of confidence in the team and in the trends that we're currently seeing during the first quarter and into second quarter. We ended the first quarter with two months of hard data, which included 257 patient star forms 
and a solid, albeit early conversion rate. These trends continue and have grown into the early part of Q2. Things are off to a good start, and just like any novel drug launch, the back half of the year is going to be that much more important. As mentioned by one of our sell-side analyst notes, most launches only realize a small percentage, give or take less than 5% or so, of first-year sales in their initial launch quarter. We had just 60 days. So when you look at this metric, we believe that we are right on trend and currently pointing in the right direction. It's also impressive to see these types of results in an environment highly impacted by COVID-19. And now with vaccines being broadly available in the U.S. and with current vaccination rates escalating around the country, we expect things to open up more broadly. A return to something close to pre-COVID levels would be a big event, especially for patients, clinicians, as well as our reps who are out there in the field doing their jobs every day. On our end, we continue to ramp up all of our activities. Our commercial team is out in the field and continues to educate clinicians. We launched our consumer ad campaign for Loop Kindness, which leverages traditional and digital strategies. We also continue to engage with the payer community and have seen more policies coming online and formulary inclusion for Loop Kindness, obviously increasing our access with additional commercial and government providers. A few other things I'd like to mention as we look forward to the rest of 2021. First, we're looking forward to the upcoming publication of the Aurora Phase Three Clinical Study in a peer-reviewed journal. This manuscript has been accepted and should be published in the very near future. We will also have baclosporin data presented at the upcoming ULAR and ERA Congresses in June. Our data display and new cuts of data continue at every major medical event during 2021. On the clinical and regulatory fronts, we, along with our European and Japanese partner, Atsuka, are making the final preparations and remain on track to file the MAA for Baclosporin and the EMA by the end of the current quarter. In addition, we also remain on track with our plans for approaching the PMDA in Japan this year. With respect to our post-marketing commitments to the FDA, we plan to initiate our first pediatric adolescent study with Baclosporin later this year as well as finalizing our plans for a required lactation study. In addition, the Aurora 2 blinded two-year continuation study is on target to achieve a database lock by the end of 2021, and we look forward to reporting to you all our top-line results during the first quarter of 2022. And behind the scenes, our R&D group is actively working on continued product differentiation for Voclosporin. More to report in the future, but as you've seen, we continue to publish R&D work evaluating novel attributes of baclosporin related to its lack of impact on elements such as glucose and lipids. More to come in the future on this. And then lastly, on the financial front, we ended the first quarter with just over $360 million, which will support well us and our efforts well into 2023. So we have a strong balance sheet to support our ongoing activities. I want to now turn the call over to Max Kalau, our Chief Commercial Officer, who will provide you with some more detail about our first quarter launch activities. Then after that, Joe Miller, our CFO, will give you more details about how our first quarter financial results laid out. So with that, let me turn the call over to Max. Max? Thank you, Peter, and good afternoon, everyone. 
Let me begin with uh, the three takeaways that I'd like to capture from my remarks. And then I'll provide some supporting details for all the key points. First, as Peter highlighted, I'm pleased to report that our progress and results in the first quarter are in line with our expectations. Our rare disease commercial model is working. Second, the dynamics of launching in the COVID environment are proving to be even more of a challenge than we initially expected. And let me tell you, that's really saying something because we went into this environment with our eyes wide open. Even so, the headwinds have been stronger than forecast, and so more about this in a minute as well. The third takeaway is more promising, and that is an event both rare and significant that occurred after the quarter closed. It has the potential to generate additional momentum by providing clear payer guidance in establishing Leukinus coverage policies. That's cause for excitement, not only for us, but also for patients and their caregivers. And I'll provide details in just a minute. But first, how about some greater detail around the first quarter? The metrics I'm gonna share reflect 48 business days of activity post-approval. Over this time, we've tenaciously worked to drive Leukinus adoption and to support HCPs and patients to gain access to treatment. To give you a sense of, a back, of the magnitude behind this effort, more than 2,000 HCPs have attended our education programs. These have been a very effective forum for top KOLs to share their insight on the current state of the art in treating lupus nephritis and on lupkinus in particular. In the field, we've engaged over 6,000 HCPs to educate and identify patients. This represents 50% of our target universe. That number is even more impressive when viewed in the context of the current COVID environment, where HCP access remains a formidable challenge. And when you consider that over 60% of these interactions have been face-to-face -face versus remote, you can see why I say the team's efforts have been truly tenacious. As a result of these efforts, we received 257 patient start forms into Arrhenia Alliance in Q1. In terms of conversion rates, 40% of these patients started treatment by the end of March. It's important to remember that this difference is not due to either bad start forms or lack of access. Rather, it reflects the time it takes for a script to be fully vetted by a payer and then reimbursed. That timing can be anywhere from 20 to as many as 50 days. So the real point here is that Arrhenia Alliance has clearly been effective in supporting patients and providers gain product access. Quantitatively, we see further evidence of this as patient start forms and patients on treatment continue to increase here in the second quarter. Qualitatively, the feedback from both patients and providers on Arrhenia Alliance support has been exceptional. I'll share with you two brief quotes of the many comments that we've received. The first one is, quote, the support has been exceedingly helpful. As much as I love hearing that, this next testimonial is the one I like even better. In reference to Arrhenia Alliance, 
this particular individual described it as the best I've ever encountered. Our team has been just as tenacious with payers as we have with healthcare providers and patients. As a result of our proactive payer education efforts, we have today confirmed coverage for more than 120 million lives, 40% of the total. And even though it's still early, 11 payers have published Lupkina-specific coverage policies as of now. All of the policies provide coverage to LM patients according to the labeled indication and are consistent with how Lupkina was studied in its clinical trials. We expect the majority of payers to establish Lupkina policies in the next six months. So to sum up the first quarter, these metrics around Lupkina's prescribing and access actually ended up in line with what we anticipated. And as such, we remain confident in the credibility of our goal of establishing Lupkina's as the standard of care for LN and the viability of our commercial model to achieve that goal. In fact, we believe our metrics would even be more favorable were it not for the limiting effects of the ongoing COVID environment. And this isn't mere conjecture, it's a belief that's grounded in data. As reported by the World Lupus Federation, lupus patient care has been disrupted significantly by the COVID-19 pandemic. In their recent survey of lupus patients, WLF reported that 50% of the participants had decreased access to care. Patients reported significant hurdles in seeing their physicians and in access to medical testing. Our own data corroborates the impact of COVID on our launch trajectory. Consider this, territories in Florida and Texas are outperforming territories in Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Michigan by multiples that range from five to 15 times. And this variability is not a reflection of inconsistent talent in the field. As I've mentioned on previous calls, we've recruited a seasoned, committed, and expert sales team for all geographies. As I remarked a minute ago, this team has been able to gain access on a face-to-face -face basis over 60% of the time. But that's when access to clinicians is available in the first place. What we see is depressed results in those areas that have been subject to significantly higher degree of restrictions versus the less restrictive environments such as Florida and Texas. If there's a silver lining to this cloud, it's that the market traction we're obtaining in less restricted territories bodes well for the future. As more people become vaccinated, as states relax their COVID restrictions, and as LN care standards normalize. What also bodes well for the future is the feedback from rheumatologists and nephrologists in our market research. In looking at two pulse research studies that we conducted after launch, we're seeing greater than 70% of those surveyed to have leukinus awareness and strong recall of leukinus messaging. Most promisingly, we see more than 60% of surveyed rheumatologists and nephrologists intending to increase their leukinus prescribing in the next three months. So we have multiple reasons to anticipate increasing prescribing momentum over the course of the year.
And considering that we're still in the early phases of establishing payer access for Lupkinus, I wanted to highlight a milestone event that I alluded to earlier, namely is the completion of the Institute of Clinical and Economic Review, or ICER, recently completed cost-effectiveness assessment and its published guidance for payer policy. ICER is a completely independent organization that conducts and reviews analyses to determine the extent of additional clinical value a drug offers over and above therapeutic alternatives and the current standard of care. Also, it evaluates whether or not the drug is priced in alignment with its clinical value and provides pol payer policy guidance. In other words, it provides payers guidance on how to make a therapy available and what type of restrictions are appropriate to consider. In their analysis of Lucinus, ICER leveraged the knowledge and perspective of multiple stakeholders. For instance, there was insight from world-leading KOLs in this therapeutic area, including Dr. Brad Rovin, Dr. Megan McKay. Also, they solicited input from Kathleen Arnston, president of the Lupus and Allied Diseases Association, and Linda Blount, president and CEO of the Black Women's Health Initiative. ICER actually sought input from payers themselves, such as Humana and Primera Blue Cross. With all this multifaceted expertise and context, permit me to share some relevant verbatims from their report. Quote, Lupkinus is an important new treatment option. That's good, but it gets better. Quote, Lupkinus is priced in alignment with estimates of its benefits for patients. That's good too, but it gets better yet. Quote, this should guide payers to design coverage criteria that do not narrow coverage from the FDA label and that there is no other treatment that could be considered a first step treatment prior to eligibility. Okay, I have one more to share with you. And it's the one I like the best, and it's the reason I'm so enamored with it, is that it comes from ICER's president, Steve Pearson, who understandably prides himself on a skepticism of drug company pricing. But with regard to Lupkinus, he said, quote, it's a celebration to have new treatments like this. How often do we see brand new drugs, their first indication to be, pre to be priced within shouting distance of a fair cost-effectiveness range. Almost never. It's just that rare. We're fortunate to be able to welcome that event." End quote. And thank you, Dr. Pearson. His point about how rare it is understates the case. For out of the 102 therapeutic assessments that ICER has completed over the years, only 12 therapies, 12 therapies were ju ju judged to be cost-effective. So again, you can appreciate why we look at this as a true milestone event. So to sum up, as I promised at the outset, let me summarize. We had a positive first quarter. We're on track. No small accomplishment in this challenging COVID environment. And while I'm the last person in the world to say that these challenges are fully behind us, I do believe it's fair to forecast some reduction in these headwinds in the coming months. There are definitely visible signs of this. I mean, 
The uptake in rush hour traffic has to be encouraging, I suppose. But seriously, to whatever degree that takes place, there are multiple factors that justify our expectation for increased momentum. And not the least of these is the feedback from providers and patients that their UPCR numbers have been cut in half, even though the patients have been receiving lupinus for a short time. That type of encouragement continues to energize our incredibly dedicated Arrhenia team who have gone above and beyond since launch. They've done a great job in communicating the Lucinus value proposition, supporting providers and patients in the most challenging of environments. It's exciting to see their efforts beginning to come to full fruition. I'd now like to turn the call over to Joe for a review of the financials. Joe? Thank you, Max, and good afternoon, everyone. As of March 31st, 2021, Arenia had cash, cash equivalents, and investments of 361 million compared to 423 million at December 31st, 2020. The decrease is primarily related to the commercial infrastructure spend to support the launch of loop kindness, coupled with an upfront investment made in connection with the previously discussed monoplant manufacturing facility and one-time milestone payments triggered by the approval and first commercial sale of loop kindness both of which were paid out in the quarter. Net cash used in operating activities was 53.5 million for the quarter ended March 31, 2021, compared to 22.6 million for the quarter ended March 31, 2020. The increase is primarily due to the commercial infrastructure spend to support the launch of Loop Kindness. As a reminder, in the prior year, the company was still in the development phase of Loop Kindness, and as a result, we did not incur any material related selling expenses. The company believes we have sufficient capital uh, financial resources to fund our current plans, which include funding commercial activities, manufacturing and packaging of commercial drug supply, conducting our plan R&D programs, including our FDA-related post-approval commitments, and operating activities into at least 2023. For the quarter ended March 31, 2021, Arenia recorded a consolidated net loss of 50.4 million, or 40 cents per common share, as compared to a net loss of 25.9 million or 23 cents per common share for the branded March 31, 2020. Revenues were $1 million and $30,000 for the quarter ended March 31, 2021 and 2020, respectively. The increase was a result of commercial sales of loop kindness, which began in January of 2021. Cost of sales were $48,000 and $0 for the quarters ended March 31, 2021 and 2020, respectively. The increase was related to commercial sales of loop kindness. Gross margin for the quarter was approximately 95%. Research and development expenses were 9.8 million and 13.8 million for the quarter ended March 31, 2021 and March 31st, 2020, respectively. The decrease in expense is primarily due to low contract research organization expenses and other third-party clinical trial expenses following the approval of loop kindness, including a reduction in NDA preparation costs capitalization of supply costs following approval, as well as the termination of the dry eye trial in Q4 of 2020. R&D shared-based compensation expense for the quarter was approximately 1.1 million. Selling, general, and administrative expenses were 39.3 million and 11.1 million for the quarters ended March 31, 2021 and March 31st, 2020, respectively. The increase is primarily due to the expansion of our commercial infrastructure, administrative functions, and patient assistance program all in support of kindness launch. Selling general and administrative share-based compensation expense for the quarter was approximately 6.6 million. 
With that, I'd like to hand the call back over to Peter for some closing remarks. Peter? Hey, thanks, Joe and Max, and I want to thank you all for taking the time with us today. In close, it's early days, but we're feeling good about the Lucinus launch, and we want you to hear directly from us that we're executing the plan and right on track with our internal projections. As we reviewed, there's going to be a lot of activity going on in the back half of the year, and especially as things open up here in the States, we're excited about seeing greater progression. So we look forward to providing even more updates, additional updates in the quarters to come and the months to come. But for now, we'd like to open it up to any questions that you might have. So let me, uh, let me now turn it over to the operator for uh, opening up lines for questions. Certainly. Ladies and gentlemen, the floor is now open for questions. If you have any questions or comments, please press star one on your phone at this time. We do ask that while posing your question, please pick up your handset if you're listening on speakerphone to provide optimum sound quality. Once again, if you have any questions or comments, please press star 1 on your phone. Please hold while we pull for questions. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Your first question is coming from Alethea Young. Your line is live. Hey, guys. Um, thanks for taking my con- question, and congrats on, on the new start numbers. It looks pretty good. Um, a couple of things. One, I guess, I know it's early, but can you kind of give us your perspective on what you're seeing in the real world around titration? I know we've spoken to some doctors that are not always following the titration regimen, so I just wondered kind of how to think about that. And then um, just Another question, um, can you give us an update kind of on some of the Medicaid um, formularies and different things like that, um, if that is indeed applicable, and just thinking about getting, broadening out access? And, and then the last one is just, um, you know, what you're hearing or what you're, how your sales force is counter-detailing or educating against, um, you know, Godiva. I'm sorry, no, I've been listening, actually, um, you know, if it happens to come up into conversation. Thanks. Uh, why don't I start out with the first and maybe the third question there and then ask, um, you know, Max to build on the third and maybe give his commentary on the government pay side of the equation. Um, I, you know, the simple answer, Alethea, on, on titration, this is for those um, that, that don't know, this is the EGFR dosing protocol that we have in place. I guess our experience has been that, that it's, uh, you know, only with a, a few number of weeks out there. And, and limited access to direct um, information from office to office is that it's that it's on track. So our our net calcs in terms of in terms of what we think a, a net value per patient per year is seem to be playing out in the in the early weeks of the launch. Um, so on track with what our assumptions would be. Um, my answer there, Alethea. and then 
you know, on the Ben Lista thing, our, our, you, first, you can feel very comfortable that our team understands our data and understands theirs. And, um, you know, it's, it's not the primary that comes up in conversation, I think. Uh, and I'd ask Max Galau to build on this from what he's hearing at the, uh, at the field level. Um, you know, the primary is, is getting physicians to, one, identify what patient might be appropriate for leukinus therapy. And then ensuring that they're, um, you know, that they're committed to uh, differentiating the product versus other therapies that might be available or, you know, challenging them on why they, um, you know, are, may not have a sense of urgency to lower proteinuria in these patients. So there's a big education factor um, in trying to change the way physicians have historically treated. So I think that's coming up more often than hey, when I'm making a treatment decision, do I use Benlista or do I use Leukinus? Um, so let me turn it to, uh, to Max and see if he can dig a little more into maybe that question and, and the public payer side of the equation. Max? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Peter. And, and thanks, Alethea. Yeah, you're, um, Peter's spot on. You know, really the, what uh, our focus is, is really creating that urgency in terms of, you know, bringing the patient in and, and starting the treatment um, we're definitely seeing that, you know, there's just a large number of patients who, with high, uh, high levels of proteinuria that are not controlled. And so it, it's, really, it's really working through uh, creating that urgency and um, explaining the value proposition of leukinus. Um, in terms of uh, Medicaid, so it's a, it's a great question. So uh, as of April 1st, we've now confirmed that 90% uh, of Medicaid lives um, have coverage. So uh, we, we now are, are months out and the mandated um, Medicaid coverage is in place. And so we've confirmed 90% of lives now having coverage. Oh, wow, thanks, 90%, that's awesome. Uh, congrats again. Thanks, Alethea. Any more questions? No, I'll have that, thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, operator, next question. Certainly, your next question is coming from Ken Cassiator. Your line is live. Hey, thanks, uh, guys. Good evening. Uh, I know you, you reviewed a lot of different uh, metrics, so I'm just going to ask a, a couple here to help us out. Just wondering, as we get to the current moment, is the pace accelerating of enrollment forms and uh, conversion of those enrollment forms? So can you take us up to real time? Are you seeing a, a constant and steady building, or, or were we working through a little bit of a bolus? So just love to hear how you frame that out. And then also, now that you have engaged the number of clinicians um, that you suggest, just, just wondering as you're getting almost a real-time survey of the patient landscape, can you talk about your views of actual patient size? I know it's a debate amongst uh, us investors of how many LN patients are out there and accessible. Um, I would think with your interactions, you're able to kind of get a really good sense of that. So you can talk about any learnings uh, in this kind of early interaction. And then also, Peter, I hate to ask the question, but there's been commentary previous from you all about is the, the street consensus number achievable. Um, can you just kind of frame your commentary around what you're seeing consensus and how we should be thinking about that? Thanks so much. Okay, thanks, Ken. Um, for, well, first, let me just go into uh, all the numbers that we gave for the quarter were sort of locked into the quarter. So I'm, I want to try to stay very consistent to that. What I can tell you about both patient start forms and the um, time from a patient start form turning into 
uh, a patient on drug have both steadily increased and or decreased, meaning um, our, our um, patient star forms per day, per week continue to, to increase on pace, as Max said, with what our expectations are into uh, Q2. And with that, a subsequent decrease we're seeing um, as policies start to come online, as, as you know, our, our Arrhenia Alliance work with physicians and patients starts to come more online, a decrease in the time it takes from a patient to go from a patient initial star form to, uh, to actual drugs. So, so we feel good about the numbers, as, although we didn't quote exactly what the numbers are through this time period in a quarter, we feel good at the trends that we're seeing. Um, so I'll kind of I'll kind of leave it at that. One thing you did mention is, did we see a bolus of patients in the first quarter through patient star forms? Um, recall that we have an ongoing two-year extension in our Aurora, uh, uh, our original phase three Aurora trial. So we didn't have a group of, you know, 30 or 40 patients that came out of that trial and went on to commercial drugs. So there was no bolus there. And um, since we didn't have approval um, and our reps were newly trained, we were not, um, you know, out there identifying specifically patients for therapy to keep our, you know, our reps in the right zone from a compliance standpoint. So what you see generated has been the grassroots effort uh, in the first, um, you know, just, just about just under actually two months of, of the first quarter of launch. Um, you asked a question about patient size. I think our answer is going to be consistent here. Um, you know, I think we still believe there's somewhere between 80 to 100,000 patients um, with active lupus nephritis in the U.S. Um, and of that, we think we have um, an ability to play in about 80% of, of those patients. Now, what I will put a strong caveat on is we have seen you know, in this COVID environment, access um, restrictions at certain centers, which is obvious. Many of the major medical institutions, especially tertiary care centers, are pretty locked down, right? So lupus clinics in many of those centers um, are not happening or they're happening virtual. And as the data Max shared, patient visits in general and follow-up diagnostic patients for patients with, or, or visits for patients with lupus are down almost 50% according to a very sizable patient survey done by the World Lupus Foundation. So, you know, it's kind of hard to tell what we're learning in terms of real world on the ground data um, because of the COVID environment. But we still stay very confident in those, um, higher, uh, those higher level numbers. As we learn more and things open up more, um, we'll make sure to uh, relay some of that information to the markets. And then lastly, your, your last question was centered around where uh, consensus is, and I will just reiterate that we feel um, comfortable in the zone of where consensus is, and, um, you know, as we're hard charging um, with our business, that has not changed in the first quarter. Any follow-on questions, Ken? No, thanks, Peter. I appreciate it, and thanks to the whole team. Thank you. Operator, uh, do we have a, another question in the queue? Certainly. Your next question is coming from Joseph Swartz. Your line is live. Great. Thanks for all of the helpful insights about the launch. It's good to hear um, the encouraging leading indicators. I was wondering if you could just expand a little bit by passing on some of the most common adoption patterns you're seeing um, so far. Um, for example, is it mostly physicians that you've met with? 
in person or virtually? Is that also the case? And who have submitted start forms and for which patients are they reaching for vocalsporin? Um, is it larger practices or academic practices versus smaller practices and community practices at this point, given what I heard you say about the greater appreciation for the importance of proteinuria at some places? Who, who've been the early adopters and um, how do you expect the adoption patterns to evolve at the ground level? Yeah, uh, thanks, Joe. And let me, let me turn that right to, uh, to Max Kalau and he can give you a little bit more color um, you know, from the first 60 days or so of what we're seeing in terms of doc and physician trends, Max? Sure, thanks. Um, trends. Absolutely. So, yeah, the, so the prescribers, um, it's 50% of them. It's really kind of splits down the middle between rheumatologists and nephrologists, 50% uh, on each side. Um, most of our prescribing at this point is in the community. Uh, now, you know, there's most of the patients are in the community. Now, now the issue there is that, you know, the, the physicians in the community will only have a handful of patients, right? So you have to reach many physicians uh, in the community to drive adoption. Um, in the lupus centers, we've talked about this before, there are about 60 lupus centers in the United States. Uh, they're most, they're all within um, academic centers. They're definitely the areas where we have the most difficult time gaining access. Some of the lupus centers are actually still virtual. Some of them plan to be virtual till, till year end. Um, but we've gotten adoption uh, in 50% uh, of the lupus centers. And we have some leading lupus centers that are starting to, leading, to start to lead the way, including um, Hopkins, uh, UCSF, uh, SUNY Downstate. So, so we're pleased to see that we are um, you know, making progress, even though it's, it's uh, it's more challenging because of the the access issues yeah right i can appreciate that um, and, and i'll make one more point which is in terms of patients so the patients that that are going on treatment um are acro across all um you know class three four five um primarily okay that's where i was going next actually and you know are, are you finding that physicians are are is is there really no um, set of common patterns? I mean, how how are the physicians choosing these patients? Is it the next patients that were, you know, set to come in? Uh, or anyway, are they reaching out in any cases to their uh, worst cases? Um, are they is it patients that are you know um, the most refractory and advanced? Um, yeah, I would say that it reflects um, the, you know, I would say that it reflects what we see to be the largest patient opportunity, um, you know, at launch, which are basically the patients that, uh, that may, that likely have been treated, but are treated and they're not achieving their um, proteinuria targets. Yeah, and, and Joe, the one thing I would add that was already said, and I think it's an important point, we're seeing some regional differences, right? Like where access is much higher, um, we're seeing a, a higher productivity. And um, we think that trend is going to evolve, um, you know, as, as things open up in some other geographies more. That's the only thing I would add. Very, very helpful. Thanks again. Thanks, Joe. Operator, do we have another question? Certainly. Your next question is coming from Maury Raycroft. Your line is live. 
everyone. Uh, congrats on the progress and thanks for taking my questions. Um, first one is just uh, checking in to see if it's possible to see some of the Aurora 2 data at ULAR. Um, so just wanted to clarify on that. Um, uh, or what else should we be expecting at, at the ULAR meeting? Yeah, Neil's on the phone. Um, Neil, I don't know if we've um, submitted our any of our, um, I think I don't know see what the deadlines are for ULAR, but you want to give any commentary on um, what might be seen this year around Aurora to the Aurora 2 or, or the Aurora 2-year extension? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, the Aurora 2 continues in a blinded fashion, but there are interim cuts that have been made for um, uh, the regulatory submissions. So there was a cut made, obviously, for the FDA submission, 90-day safety update, but also a cut made for the MAA in Europe, which is going at the end of June. Um, and there is um, a, a presentation um, at ULA um, that has some of that uh, Aurora 2 um, uh, aggregate data um, that's going to be presented um, in June. We don't have the exact uh, uh, date or time, and the abstract's not been released yet, but you will see some of that. And obviously, towards the back half of the year, there's ASN and ACR, and it's our intention to submit even more data there. Got it. Okay, that's helpful. And um, for the Aurora 2 extension data, um, just wondering if you tested that in your market research surveys with KOLs and if that had any impact on their future use of loop kindness, or if there's any, <clears throat> any additional color you can provide on... Um, the market research and uh, and some of the the results you saw there. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll start and uh, and obviously the guy who's the closest to it, Max Klaus, should should build on whatever I might miss here. But um, uh, listen, I mean, Max said it right. Like the intent to utilize the drug by both rooms and nephrologists is is greater than fifty percent, right? Um, so I think it's encouraging, and that's that's irregardless of the Aurora two extension um, study. I wonder, uh, Max, if we've done any research specifically asking about that, but I think it's intuitive, um, you know, to assume that, that with that data, it's only going to strengthen our position. Um, you know, I mean, it's primarily a safety study, but showing that the drug continues to be safe after that time period is only going to strengthen um, Doc's conviction around the product and the amount of time they can use the product. Do we have anything specific, Max? Not specific to Aurora 2, um, but what we do have specific to in the market research is that, you know, the, the, uh, the efficacy messages are resonating, um, the, uh, and there's both strong recall and, and uh, high impact um, from the efficacy messages. Uh, the, uh, definitely, we see that the physicians are looking for more safety data, and we believe that, uh, that Aurora 2 will be uh, important in helping to kind of illustrate, especially what the long-term treatment, the consequences of long-term treatment. So, yeah, we're, we're we're looking forward to that. Got it. Okay. Thanks for taking my question. Thank you. Thanks, Morris. Operator, any another question? Absolutely. Your next question is coming from Justin Kim. Your line is live. Hi. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking the question. Uh, just the one for me, is the team able to characterize what a goal depth of engagement might be for a target prescriber? Maybe just to say it another way, how many sort of interactions on average 
um, maybe ideal before a physician has enough comfort in writing a script, et cetera, um, and how that sort of engagement has been impacted by the pandemic or improved over the, the recent months? Yeah, I, I think we actually have some of that data. And, uh, and Max, I don't know if you want to go maybe yeah. into a sure. little of that detail. Yeah, sure. And so, and I alluded to this, um, you know, in the areas um, really in the South where, where access is more open and actually we can get frequency with physicians, that's where we're seeing the highest levels of prescribing. And your, your question is spot on. It, you know, the, it takes multiple engagements for, with the physician um, to get comfortable, to identify the patient, to get into a Rhenia Alliance. Um, you know, on average across the nation, we've had um, about, I think it's about two and a half um, engagements across all of the prescriber base. But in the areas where we see uh, the highest prescribing, that, that average goes into like seven, 10 and, and above. Mm -hmm. Got it. And, and maybe just another one as a follow-up, how long does the team expect to reach that sort of double doubling of, of the physicians engaged? Is there a sort of a, a time estimate in terms of how long that might take? Huh. Yeah, I, I, like, yeah. Listen, I think we have our, our internal projections of, um, uh, you know, how rep, reps getting out there and talking to docs, but you know, the live engagements, you know, is going to evolve. So I'm not, I'm not sure we have a, uh, you know, a tr we, we definitely don't hold that up as a metric to our sales force. You know, we want you to see X number of physicians, X number of times. Max, would you have a more, um, you know, quantifiable answer to that? No, that's, that's spot on. Because of the regional differences around access, we, we haven't set specific targets. Um, but, um, you know, but, but what, again, what we're seeing is that, that frequency increases as, as we, you know, as things open up. Understood. Thanks so much, and uh, congrats on the progress. Thanks, Justin. Operator, do we have another call? or? Uh, yes, your next question is coming from Ed Ark. Your line is live. Hi, everyone. Thanks for taking my questions, and uh, congrats on the early progress of the launch. Um, first, uh, first question is just on, you know, the, the first obvious tier as you just get into the launch, which is um, uh, patient access and reimbursement. It, you mentioned uh, at this point you've already got 120 million lives uh, covered uh, and 11 uh, payers have actually published um, Lupkina-specific uh, coverage plans. Uh, I was wondering first if you uh, are um, free to disclose any of those 11 payers. Uh, and then um, with those policies, um, are there any specific sort of restrictions along the coverage pathway that are of interest, um, uh, you know, especially given the, the, the broad label and the very favorable uh, you know, ICER recommendation. Just curious if there were any sort of um, odd restrictions placed by any of those. Uh, and then lastly, um, you mentioned um, the, the, uh, the number of start forms and the conversions. Uh, again, it's early days. I'm just wondering if there have been uh, any payer declinations uh, so far. Thanks again. Max, I'll uh, I'll tee to you on the on the payer and uh, and other questions that Ed just ran through. Happy to add color, but you're the closest. 
Max, you may be on mute. Yeah, thanks for that. So, so thanks for the question. And so, yeah, the 11 um, payers, uh, they include, uh, let's see, Aetna, Cigna, Highmark, Anthem, uh, a number of the Blue Crosses, uh, uh, Health Now. Um, so, so that's the, those are the ones that have published Lupkinus-specific coverage policies. And like I said, all of them are aligned to the labeled indication. All of them, um, you know, are consistent with how it's, how uh, Lupkinus studied. And I would say, out of all those lives in the in the uh, covered by the 11 um, policies, 90% of them uh, don't have any uh, step through requirements. And then the ones that do, the primary step through requirement is is through MMF and steroids. So those are those are the uh, the coverage policies. Um, of course, we've had um, payer denials. That that's common, just because even though if if there isn't a covered you know, if there isn't a kind of specific policy, then it's it's unclear what the criteria is. And so you don't you do. And this is typical in any rare disease launch. You do go through a denial and appeal process on a set of, um, you know, a set of prescriptions. Uh, that's just par for the course. But that's, you know, from what we've seen in terms of denials, appeals and working through the process, there's nothing really that stands out that would be um, different than, than what we've seen in other rare disease launches. Great. Thanks, Max. Appreciate it. Operator, do we uh, have another question? Thank you. Your next question is coming from David Martin. Your line is live. Yes, thanks for taking my questions. Um, the first one relates to the last uh, question that you were asked. Um, so the 11 payers that you named, what percent of the 100 million lives do they represent? Yeah, that, so on that one, you know, it's hard to, um, you know, exactly quantify that. Um, I would say it's, you know, kind of a very rough estimate would be, you know, 20%. And if they don't, if amongst those 80 million other lives, there isn't a, um, a specific coverage plan in place, how, how are the requests for reimbursement handled and what, what is the reimbursement in those situations? Yeah, so every payer has a non-formulary um, request process. And it's simply, it's, it's typically just a generic power authorization uh, type of form where the physician um, articulates the rationale of why they want to use, um, you know, the, the name therapy. And so that's the, that's the process if there isn't a coverage policy in place. Okay. Um, another question, are any patients, are many patients coming on to loop kindness as they start MMF and steroids, or are most of them coming on only after they failed those? Yeah, so, so, you know, we don't have um, visibility to exactly all of the treatments uh, that, that the patients are on and when they've started treatments. We don't have the visibility through Arrhenia Alliance. But I can just tell you anecdotally that we, we are hearing of, of um, you know, newly diagnosed patients coming on uh, Leukinus, even though the bulk of the patients that are on Leukinus are ones that have been on other treatments and just are not getting to their proteinuria goal. 
Okay. And uh, last question. Uh, has there been any pushback? Like you mentioned that some doctors are waiting for the long-term safety data. Um, are any not prescribing it until they get that data because calcium urine inhibitors do have, you know, uh, the older ones have a history of uh, long-term nephrotoxicity. And is there any pushback because there are cheaper calcium urine inhibitors on the market? Well, I mean, let, well, let me start there. First off, I, I just want to make sure, you know, we put the right context out there. And calcium urine inhibitor data um, in terms of nephrotoxicity has been seen in primarily the transplant population and in, in, in higher doses. That's not to say it doesn't, the problem doesn't accrue to us. And it's not to say that we don't get the question because we do. Um, you know, we, we do hear from some, um, some physicians out there not a hesitancy to wait to utilize the product, but I think one of the areas we got to, you know, focus on and really put intensity of our education efforts around impact, not just our, not just our data, but also around disease state awareness and what the impact of not aggressively treating is on these patients. We do hear that, um, you know, uh, well, yeah, I know the drug, I know the data, and, you know, I'll consider it for, you know, patients that, um, you know, that I consider for first-generation CNI, you know, like this is a better CNI. Well, obviously, those physicians don't even really understand how we studied the drug, and I think that's just a matter of education. But, Max, you know, you can build on, and I wouldn't say that that is a end that is representative of the full community. We, I'm just being, you know, completely clear that we do hear that question. I don't know that we hear a lot that I'm not going to utilize the product until I see two-year data. Um, have we, Max? You know, I, I, I would characterize just very consistent when you launch, um, you know, a new therapy uh, that's been studied uh, in clinical trials. You, you have a subset of physicians that, will, that are cautious and they want to see more data, more safety data, right? And I think that's just very consistent with, with uh, what we're seeing is very consistent with what we've seen in other launches. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks, David. Operator, anyone else left in the queue? There are no further questions in the queue at this time. Okay, beautiful. Well, listen, I want to thank everybody for uh, joining us uh, after business hours on the East Coast. And as I said in my closing comments, I want to uh, uh, thank you and promise everyone that as we continue to make significant progress here, we'll uh, look forward to laying that out over the quarter and uh, quarters and months to come. Thank you for your time tonight. Take care. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This does conclude today's event. You may disconnect your line to this time and have a wonderful day. Thank you for your participation. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.